Ian Brady, and Myra Henley. We're going to be covering the infamous Moore's murders. There's something different about them. There's something even darker about them. 16-year-old Pauline Reed was on her way to a dance. 12-year-old John Kilbride went to the movies with his friend John Ryan that afternoon. 12-year-old Keith Bennett was heading to his grandmother's home to spend the night. 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downey. 17-year-old Edward Evans. He could have told me that the earth was flat. I would have believed him. Not only did he not show remorse, that he made it clear that he never would. Ian never made me do anything I didn't want to do. No way can they let, let them out. If they do, I'll be going in because she'll be dead. Help us raise, raise the prisons to the ground. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. Joining in the studio is my co-host, Austin. What's up, man? Hey, how's it going? Doing all right. And behind the screens over there, we got our producer, Daniel. What's up, man? How's it going, everybody? Today, we are back with another dark, very disturbing serial killer couple. This particular couple draws a lot of similarities to a couple we've covered a few weeks ago, Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka. But these two, there's something different about them. There's something even darker about them. We're going to be covering the infamous Moore's murders, which consisted of Ian Brady and Myra Henley as the killers. This case has actually been highly requested by many of you, especially those of you out in the UK because this is an English case and there's just something very I don't know this one leaves me feeling very very ill to be honest with you it's just it's probably one of the most disturbing cases out there but before we get into the episode I wanted to remind you that we still have cryptid collection available at mileharbors.com it's a great way to support the show I believe we still have all of our designs available, so get those while they last, because once we're out, we won't be restocking that collection. And and thank you to those who've already purchased merch. We really appreciate it. It does help us keep the show going. But if you're not able to support us via merch, easy way to do it without paying any money whatsoever is just making sure you subscribe to us on YouTube and following us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. With that being said, let's just go ahead and dive into the Moore's murders. We're going to begin this episode by taking a look at really the mastermind of this couple. And honestly, I believe the devil in human form, and that is Ian Brady. This episode today is brought to you by Every Plate. Every Plate is now owned by HelloFresh, a leading meal kit company. What I love about Every Plate and what sets it aside from all the other meal kit companies is that it is so cheap compared to the other ones. It's so inexpensive. And if you're looking to budget your food this summer, you get more bang for your bite with America's best value meal kit. Every Plate is 25% cheaper than grocery shopping with no hidden fees. So you can honestly count on that great value week after week. Plus, 
You only pay for what you need with pre-portioned ingredients. I love the portions that they give you, and you can even double the portion size. All the directions are right there. I've had their creamy Dijon chicken, which was delicious, and their grilled onion burgers are also something to write home about. It almost feels like I'm at a restaurant, but I have a little bit of more pride and sense of accomplishment because I'm the one who cooked it. And honestly, if you're worried about prep and cooking, it really doesn't take that long a time. If you get a two-person team on that thing, someone can be cutting vegetables while another person's prepping. It's so quick and easy. Get started with every plate for just $1.49 per meal by going to everyplate.com podcast and entering code 49 lights out. That's everyplate.com slash podcast entering code 49 lights out. Ian Brady was born on January 2nd, 1938 in the Gorbals area of Glasgow, Scotland, one of the roughest neighborhoods in town. His mother was Margaret Stewart. She went by Peggy. She was a tea room waitress and his father has never been identified. His mother often told him the story that his father was a reporter for a Glasgow newspaper and he had died three months before Ian was born. Either way, his name given at birth was Ian Duncan Stewart, a name that would change many times throughout his childhood. When he was an infant, Peggy soon realized she couldn't afford to raise him. She had to work during the day and couldn't afford a babysitter. Sometimes she even risked leaving him at home all by himself. And she also knew there was a negative social stigma around illegitimate children. So Peggy ended up posting an ad in the newspaper for Ian when he was four months old. And she eventually gave her son away to Mary and John Sloan, while also signing over his welfare payments. Peggy would often visit him throughout his childhood, but refused to tell him that she was his mother. The Sloan couple had four children of their own and decided to take Ian in as their fifth. Ian then took their last name. And as he grew up, he had no idea that Peggy was his biological mother. Around the age of nine, Ian discovered his love for the outdoors, and his parents often took him to Loch Lomond, a loch between the lowlands of central Scotland and the highlands, and this was a place for him to get away from the city slums and relax. He would sit by the water for hours at a time, wanting to be left alone, staring out. A few months later, he and his family moved to public housing in Pollock, and by the time he was 10 years old, his parents noticed he would throw violent tantrums and bang his head against the wall if he didn't get his way. It was also around this time that Ian slowly began realizing who Peggy really was. For years, he figured Peggy was just a nice family friend who stopped by and brought him gifts every once in a while, but he soon put two and two together. Once he realized he had been lied to for years, his frustration manifested into isolation, and anger began building inside. He began to withdraw, and signs of dysfunctional behavior and moodiness began to grow. At school, he was unpopular, but he was smart. At age 11, he passed the entrance exams for Shawlands Academy, a school for above-average intelligence. But even though he was smart, he was often lazy. Instead of schoolwork, he spent his time diving into the atrocities of Nazi Germany, Hitler, as well as Nazi symbolism. By age 11, the war had long been over, and he always bothered his classmates, whose father served in the war. He desperately wanted to see any of their souvenirs, especially any Nazi ones. He also loved playing war games with other students and always pretended that he was the German. And many believe it was around this age that he formed an obsession with animal torture. 
Some say Ian bragged about killing his first cat when he was only 10 years old. And between the ages of 13 and 16, he was arrested three times for burglary and breaking and entering. For the first two times, he was just given probation, but by the third time, he was ordered by the court to leave Glasgow and live with his biological mother. So in November 1954, two months before his 17th birthday, he moved back in with Peggy. By now, she hadn't seen him in more than four years, and she had since moved to Manchester, England and married an Irish laborer named Patrick Brady. Ian would never get along with his stepfather, but he ended up taking his last name. So for the second and final time, he changed his name, which was now Ian Brady. And while in Manchester, his isolation and hostility grew, and his Scottish accent made him stick out like a sore thumb. He would often lock himself in his bedroom, reading and listening to music. One of his favorite books was Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. I've never personally read it, but I know one of the big themes is the destructiveness of an unchecked ego. And we'll, we'll see this time and again with Ian. He likes to take media and kind of inject himself into it and get, get the wrong ideas from it. So instead of looking at this unchecked ego as like something to be critiqued, he's looking at it as more of a way of what can I draw from this or what, how can I be a part of this unchecked ego? So we'll see that going forward. He has this weird obsession with certain types of media and he usually draws the false conclusions. He also read books by philosophers like Marquis de Sade, who wrote about sex without moral principles. He also read Nietzsche, whose works have been connected to Nazi ideologies, but it's controversial because Nietzsche wasn't a Nazi himself. If anything, he distanced himself from Nazi ideologies, but his works are still debated. The big problem is that Nietzsche's sister took over his estate and all of his books when his mental health started to decline. And she was the one that started releasing new versions of his books that injected these Nazi ideologies in him. That's why his works are still debated to this day. And Elizabeth even created an entirely new book under his name, which was called The Will to Power. And supposedly that had a lot of heavy Nazi ideology in it. And that was one of the books that Ian focused on. So over the years, he really tried to find as many books as he could about just disgusting things, torture, abuse, sadomasochism, Nazis. And he kind of made that a part of his personality. It's really interesting. I'm thinking as you're, as you're talking through that, like, why? Why did he go that route? You know, there's so many different routes you could go that would be far more beneficial to somebody and would help you obviously not stand out in the world in, in such a horrific way. And it seems to me that he was on a power trip from a young age. Like he's trying to figure out a way to separate himself from everybody else to make himself more powerful than everybody else. And it's just, it's, it's wild that from, you know, 10, 11 years old, he's diving into such brutal texts and yeah. he's filling his head with all this extremely violent imagery and racism. And I mean, literally the worst of the worst ideologies that are out there. And he's really seemingly trying to make it a part of his identity of who he is. Seems like he had harbored a lot of hate. Yeah, it definitely really seems like early. the hate was early on. And, and perhaps that's from the abandonment issues, um, which I would imagine that's a large part of it is that yeah. he felt abandoned. So it's almost like maybe he wanted to make people pay for that. 
Right. And this was how he's going to do it is make himself into this scary monster and, and derive his, you know, satisfaction from being the scariest person you can encounter. Yeah. And I also wonder, we don't know too much about John Sloan or his foster family or anything. I wonder if there was some, you know, was he a Nazi sympathizer or something? Is that where John yeah. first got, got into this? Cause that seemed to be around the time or, you know, we just it's not too, too far much. after World War II, so it'd still be possible to. I'm sure there's plenty of those people around. So For sure. I wonder if he was exposed to that from somebody else. Yeah. Because yeah, it's like such a weird thing for a relatively young person yeah, to dive into. Yeah. Such brutal topics. I mean, you look at a lot of of studies and a lot of people, you know, a lot of experts out there say that obviously between like 13 and 18 years old is. I mean, and I know from me personally is like that's a very impressionable time in a young person's life like what you learn in those years and what you consume content wise or education wise greatly affects the the adult that you become for sure so it makes a lot of sense that because he was that was basically all he was doing with his life was filling his head with all this nazism and torture and violence that he evolves into the monster that he ultimately becomes and i think that's very telling in, in this particular case but i still go back to the question of you know and we'll we'll revisit this later but is he just born evil like is he one of those individuals that there isn't really a specific rhyme or reason for why he becomes who he who he ultimately is and was just kind of his path that he was destined to be on and that's something that is very i guess curious to me and we'll we'll discuss a little bit more as we get farther into this this story but something to think about because it's like like you were saying between 13 and 18 your formative years you know there's you're very impressionable but yeah we could even trace this back a little bit further of him leaning into this dark side yeah absolutely so around the same time he found work as a butcher's assistant and some believe this is when his fascination for mutilation and murder really developed. He would spend hours every day cutting away meat from animal bones, and then he would go home and read about domination, torture, and violence. He also started drinking heavily and gambling on horse races in his free time, and since his butchering job didn't pay enough to support his bad habits, he began robbing homes again and stealing from his work. And this soon led to more arrests and a fine for public intoxication. Since he was still a teenager, he was sentenced to Borstal Youth Detention Center. But since there was no room, he served three months in Strangeways Prison in Manchester. While incarcerated, he picked up new techniques on how to perform home invasions. And he also fantasized about pulling off big-time bank heists. His work as a butcher made him resent manual labor. And he also studied bookkeeping while behind bars and ran underground gambling rings. He also brewed and drank his own alcohol in his cell's toilet. When he thought about rejoining society, he decided he never wanted to return to manual labor. But as it turned out, he couldn't find any work after his release in November 1957, and he was forced to move back in with his mother. Peggy and Patrick noticed Ian was now even more silent and withdrawn than ever before. At 21 years old, he was so desperate for money so he could move out that he took a job as a laborer at Boddington's Brewery for six months in 1958. Eventually, his bookkeeping skills came in handy, though, 
and he found work as a stock clerk at Millward's Merchandising in February 1959, where he would work for the next several years. His life would change forever once he began dating a woman named Myra Henley. Two years later, in January 1961, Myra was a shorthand typist for the merchandising company, and they had known each other for about a year before Ian finally asked her on a date at the company Christmas party. So who is Myra Henley? Myra Henley was born in Crumpsall, England on July 23, 1942. Her parents were Nellie and Bob Henley, and they raised their daughter in Gorton, a poor working-class area outside of Manchester, and they all lived in a small, rundown home. Her father was a World War II veteran and a violent alcoholic, and for Myra's early childhood years, Myra was forced to sleep in a single bed next to her parents' double bed, as they only had one bedroom in the house. Their living situation only got worse after Myra's sister, Maureen, was born in August of 1946. Bob and Nellie didn't have the money or the space to support two children, plus they both worked during the day. So when Myra was five, she was sent off to live with her grandmother, but her parents still try to be present in her upbringing. Her father taught her how to stand up for herself and fight other students. According to Myra, when she was eight, she was once attacked by a schoolboy who scratched her face and drew blood. She ran crying to her father, but he threatened to whip her with a belt if she didn't go back and fight the boy. So Myra later hunted him down and knocked him to the ground with several blows. And this is what she later called her first victory. From a young age, Myra was a victim of violence at home, at the hands of her alcoholic father and frustrated mother, and she was rewarded for violence outside of the home. So really, this is how she saw the world, or at least that's how she tried to explain her childhood many years later. She also had a lot of guilt from an early age. One summer when she was 15, one of her closest friends, 13-year-old Michael Higgins, invited her to go swimming at an old reservoir. She saw Michael like a little brother, He was timid and fragile and often got picked on. Since Myra was strong and violent, she often protected him. But that day, she blew him off to hang out with another friend. She later discovered her friend had died while swimming alone at the reservoir that day, and Myra blamed herself for his death. She was a great swimmer and could have been there to save Michael. After his death, she bounced between hysteria and depression, and she began dressing in all black. And she went around town collecting money for a funeral wreath, Michael's funeral was held at St. Francis's Monastery in Gorton Lane, where Myra was baptized as an infant. And it was here Myra found a strong reconnection with God. She had been baptized in the Catholic faith, but her mother agreed to the baptism as long as Myra never went to Catholic school. She thought the educators were too focused on the church's doctrines. But Myra was always drawn to Roman Catholicism, especially after the death of her friend Michael. She grew even closer to the church and began going to night mass as often as she could. She later confirmed her faith and received her first communion in November 1958. She then became the godmother to Michael's nephew, Anthony John. After Michael's death and discovering her faith, she soon dropped out of high school and found work as a junior clerk at a local electrical engineering firm. She ran errands, typed, and made tea. Her co-workers quickly got along with her, and they liked her so much that when Myra misplaced her first week's wage, the other girls at the firm collected enough money to replace her payment. This was also around the time she began bleaching her iconic hair. She took great pride in her bright hair, and it's what made her stand out from the rest. And she liked to wear heavy makeup to look a little older than she was. By the time she was 17 years old, she quickly got engaged to a man named Ronnie Sinclair, who worked as a tea blender at a local co-op. She called the engagement off several months later after realizing he was immature and broke. 
Meanwhile, she continued fighting but mostly kept it to her weekly judo lessons at a local school. But even in a safe environment, not many wanted to spar with her because she'd gotten a reputation for not releasing her grip fast enough. She also began looking for positions in the military, but never ended up submitting her application forms. Instead, she went off to London to search for new work. Eventually, she found a job at Millward's Merchandising. And here is where she met Ian Brady. Their co-workers saw Ian as a sullen and brooding man, but Myra saw him as quiet and mysterious. In her words, she saw silence and isolation as enigmatic, worldly, and a sign of intelligence. To Myra, Ian was different, and she liked that about him. Every night she wrote about him in her diary. From day to day, she went between loving him to hating him. Meanwhile, Ian rarely noticed Myra for almost a year, but by their company Christmas party, a few blended whiskeys loosened Ian up, and he began flirting with Myra, even though she had gone mostly unnoticed for months. But by the end of the night, Ian asked her out, and Myra was about to get her first glimpse into Ian's tortured mind. On their very first date together, Ian took her to see the movie Judgment at Nuremberg. And just like before, we'll see that Ian gets something a little different out of Judgment at Nuremberg. This was a dramatized film in 1961 based on the Nuremberg trials of former Nazi leaders. You probably know about it. Um, They were tried for their crimes against humanity under Nazi law. And while most of the world saw this movie as a great judgment on Nazi crimes in the Holocaust, of course, Ian got something else out of it entirely. Instead, he most likely saw the convictions and sentences as injustices. He also got Myra into Meyer Levin's Compulsion, which was a fictionalized account of the Leopold and Loeb case where two men attempt to commit the perfect murder of a 14-year-old boy. And they escaped the death penalty because of their age, which was 19 and 18 years old. And many think that this book might have inspired Ian and Myra's later crimes. And so you can see this media, you know, he's like obsessed with media. And now he really wants to show Myra everything that he loves. And especially in the lens that he sees these things through. Um, And at the time, there was a big argument, especially when this case came to light. And Ian Brady was put in the spotlight. A lot of people thought that, oh, the media he's consuming is warping his mind. So this was a big discussion. Was it the media warping his mind or was it Ian Brady searching out this media to fulfill some weird, dark part of his soul? Right. You know, that's a very interesting question. So it's like, was he either already having these thoughts just naturally and therefore he was looking for something to make those a reality i guess in in essence like he was looking to see those in the real world and therefore he's finding it in these films and and books and media or was he just a normal guy right (laughs) obviously not a normal guy but he you know by continuing to consume this content it was continuing to like you corrupt said, him corrupt him yeah. to the point where he's wanting to act these things out in, I guess, physical reality. What's your opinion on that? Well, I think it depends on the person. And I, I do think that media can play a part in it. But ultimately, I think it comes down to your intention behind consuming the media, right? Like your intention is everything in life and, and you know, both good and bad is like, 
for him, I believe it, the intention was to continue to draw inspiration from the media and to almost use it as an instruction manual to teach him how to do these things, right? He didn't have the actual human being teaching him how to do this stuff. So therefore he was using the media as a way to sort of teach himself on how to do these horrific things. And I do think the, you know, had he not had access to that media, would it have gone as far as it did? I don't know. And that, and that's a, I, I think someone would argue, well, he's just like this innately. So he's going to do it no matter what, whether he had the media or not. But I do think the media definitely maybe gave him ideas that he might not have had on his own. Right. Like mm -hmm. it may have inspired him to do things that he may not have done had he not watched that film or read that book. I think it's, it's definitely a possibility. Yeah. Like, what do you think? Like, I, I mean, I don't think that media can, I, this is just personally, I don't think I get anything out of media other than just watching it and thinking about it. It's kind of more provokes thought and questions for me, but I can see if you are a certain personality, possibly like Ian Brady, where, yeah, you're, you're injecting yourself into this media, you're getting something more out of it. And maybe instead of Leopold and Loeb case being something that's observed for him it's something more like he's injecting himself into that and like how can i be right. this how can i become this? well his intention is different than your intention right exactly or it's like i think mental health plays a huge part of this as well yeah and if you're a psychopath from birth obviously that's gonna you're gonna be affected by the media differently from somebody who doesn't have any mental health issues so for sure i think that's the difficult part too is we don't know the mental health of of Ian. i mean clearly there's signs of mental health issues there's depression there's you know there's other things there are the abandonment issues and so i do think for those that are mentally ill the content is an important part of it because they're perceiving it differently than say somebody who doesn't have mental health issues i think that's a pretty like clear fact like their mind is going to perceive it differently than you because there, there's issues there and so for us it's like when it comes to doing this show we're, we're talking about some of the most horrific things that have ever been done to, to humans on the planet and th that doesn't necessarily mean that it affects us in a way that would ever you know push us into a negative direction per se like we're able to because we were i guess healthy i guess i don't even know what's the term of mentally ill the opposite of mentally ill is what you're just mentally in a good spot that yeah, we're able yeah. to separate reality from you know these these different cases and different stories and therefore look just look at it objectively learn about it and then sort of compartmentalize it and then move on to you know with the rest of our life it doesn't affect us to our core where we're taking it with us and it's continuing to manifest into something bigger and bigger Definitely. You know what I mean? So I think yeah. it's just it's re it's really hard because I think every person is different. I mean, everybody's brain works differently, so it's there's no way to put blanket statements on it, and it really just depends on the person. But I, I think, and I know it's something that's starting to be studied more and more is for those that are mentally ill, what they have access to and the the content or 
media that they have access to can absolutely play into. Because I mean, if you're somebody who's already experiencing uh, hallucinations or uh, disillusion, you know, different things that are altering your state of reality, like adding those things in there could absolutely affect it. You would think, right? Yeah, could affect your your state of reality in a different way than somebody who doesn't have that. Yeah. I also think outside of mental illness, we also were kind of prone to seeing what we want to see in things. Right. So of course he would hone in on these, if he's already having these ideas of murder, of course he's honing in on these things in a different light than we would. Um, I was affirming those. Exactly. It's like, he's looking for confirmation that I'm not crazy. I'm not, there's not something wrong with me. And And there are other people out there that, have these thoughts and do these things right right. so So it's like giving him the reinforcement that he's looking for yep as opposed to had he been looking at a different type of material or media that was maybe telling him the opposite of what he was feeling right so he was looking for what was going to make him feel the most sane yeah in that moment if it reminds me have you ever heard of the book or read the book lolita I've heard of it yeah talk about a book that so many people get wrong the whole point of the book is the this narrator is manipulating the reader into thinking that this pedophilic relationship is is normal or fine and that he's not raping this young girl and it's this long book and he uses all this great prose to like manipulate the reader into thinking like oh yeah this this guy it sounds like he's totally with it and he's kind of justifying everything that he does but the whole point of the book is to see how manipulated we can be by literature and i could see people it's kind of like that where some people read that book and get that totally the wrong take on it where it's like yeah this can be justified this is right so i can imagine like a pedophile reading lolita and thinking like yeah this is exactly why we can justify they miss the whole point of it because they're just they're identifying with the things that they want to hear exactly well it's like in and from a more I, i think a more relatable perspective it's like we are all including myself i think it's just a human nature to be affected by propaganda i mean if you look at the media just like the news and the government and all you know the things that are put out by the major news outlets and things like that it's very easy to get sucked into their narratives it's very easy to lose track of of the truth or just accept the the narrative that's being presented to you so that's why that's why I come back to I do think we are all affected by media in one way or another and how deep it goes that's up to the individual right sure. how yes. deeply it affects you yeah. is up to the individual and your and your intentions and your willpower and and ultimately where you are where you're at in life and how strong your own personal beliefs are and that's why it's so important to be your own person and to think for yourself and to and to question things, you know, like if something doesn't seem right, it's okay to question it and dive into it deeper. It's, it's okay to question the official narrative of things because, you know, it, it ultimately makes you a better critical thinker. It, it, I think it makes you smarter because it's going to force you to do your own research. It's going to force you to look into things a little bit deeper and you might ultimately come to a different conclusion or you might ultimately come back to what that official narrative is. But I do think I mean, there's a reason why. I mean, you look at Nazi Germany propaganda. I mean, that was oh, such sure. a, I mean, they were able to literally brainwash an entire population into into thinking what Hitler ultimately wanted them to think. Yeah. And this this still happens in other countries today. You look at China, you look at Russia, you look at other places around the globe. Even the US. 
if you are isolated, it starts with isolation, right? You have to isolate the population. Then you, then you feed them the propaganda and you don't give them access to outside, you know, North Korea. That's the, probably the biggest example. It's like they don't have access to anything but what they're given. So it's very, I think it's very easy to use media to manipulate people into making them believe what you want. Yeah. And and I think over time and depending on the individual, it can corrupt you to your core. Yeah. And if you're mentally ill, it's just an expedited process at that point and it can things can get twisted very easily. So I I mean I I think it's it's starting to be studied more and more in the scientific community, but I think it's absolutely a real thing that people are affected by the content media they consume. And whether or not you believe it does or not, I think it does. Yeah, you I know? mean, it's a great point to say that if these massive governments see the value in manipulation through media, there's probably something tangible there. And like you can go online and find lists of a huge feature films that are have been partially funded by the United States government and you can totally. ask yourself like why why, yeah. why do they have their money in this movie well you it's know? like speaking of films I'm wearing a shirt right now I've got Sauron that's on my a shirt, shirt right now but it's like for me Lord of the Rings was like I feel like that's like a part of who I am now I I from a young age was like consuming that content read the books the movies the games the whole nine yards and it still is like this place of solace and peace for me. Like I find, you know, it's like my escape from reality is this middle earth is this world. Right. Oh, yeah. And I think, and, and it's partly why I believe content and media actually affects you at a deep, deep level. Like I almost feel a spiritual connection to this fantasy world, which sounds nuts, but it's like, so did Tolkien. That's why Tolkien, he used that, right. It. He was, yeah. you know, dealing with the world wars and things like, so it's like, and video games. I mean, people like to say, oh, video games don't affect people, you know, like shoot them, you know, shoot them up games don't affect, but it's like, I, I just disagree. I oh, think it does yeah. affect Call you. of Duty franchise alone is, is yeah. an entire I mean, it's propaganda an addicting machine. Thing. And they design these games to be addicting. Oh, they, for sure. The mechanics of it, the grind of the games is, is addicting. I mean, I was addicted to World of Warcraft for years yeah. and spent thousands of dollars on this game oh you were that guy oh yeah i was that nice. guy for i mean from like sixth grade like yeah. i was you know i would literally be raiding till three in the morning <laughs> asleep in my science class the next day like it was bad like it's so it is this the games are manipulating they are they want to suck you in they yeah. want to hook you to bring you back because that's it's ultimately how they make money it's how they you know become successful video games for sure i mean i'm sure both of you have games that like are like that and suck you in and oh and maybe even you feel like they've affected you at your core almost or films the, or, the new zelda i know daniel and i have <laughs> just been absolutely obsessed with the latest zelda game so yeah 100 yeah and and nostalgia right yeah the nostalgia that media movies and video games provide it is a feeling it's it's like I crave that nostalgia. I go back to certain games because it gives me that rush, that feeling. It takes my brain back to a different part of my life where I'm like, wow, this was such a great time. Yeah. Like, you know, you hear the music, you, you see that, you know, you play that old level or that old game and you're like, where did my childhood go? You oh, know, it yeah, takes you back. For and, sure. When I hear like Zelda's lullaby, I'm, phew, I'm right, straight yeah, back yeah. to sitting in the couch in my basement when I was like seven years old. So it's like, with that being said, 
I don't know that there's a great argument to say media doesn't affect you. Yeah, for sure. Physically, mentally, emotionally, and I could argue spiritually as well. Yeah. I do think it affects, and that's why it's such a big industry in our world is because it does, it has that effect on us. For sure. Just, yeah. just my personal opinion. I'm sure some people disagree with me and like, oh, I can, you know, separate myself from all of it. And, you know, I could go live on an island and be completely fine and happy without all of that. And, you know, it doesn't affect me. And I'm sure there's people out there that are like that. And that's fine. Like maybe they're, everybody's different, right? We're all, we all are special beings and we all have our own, you know, things, but I'm sure there's other things that maybe you couldn't live without. Yeah. It's just, I think there's something unique about human beings that we, we crave those things and we need them. We seek them out. And some, most of the time it's a pot, very positive, uplifting thing. But then there's those that gravitate towards the dark, the evil side of things. And they, they just dwell in those areas. And obviously, you know, you fill your head with a bunch of positive positivity, you know, really uplifting content, you get a certain type of individual. But then on the other hand, you fill yourself with dark, evil, and, you know, potentially open yourself up to supernatural forces, which, you know, depending on what you believe, if that's real or not to you, it's a whole other thing. And I think for Ian, it's very clear he's dwelling in this dark place and he's continuing to seek this stuff out because he's trying to make it a part of him. Yeah. He wants to be that manifestation of all the all of this evil, as you'll see as we go forward. So Ian and Myra, they're dating, and it's a very odd relationship, to say the least. Ian is showing Myra his records of Hitler's marching songs, and he tried to get her to read Mein Kampf, along with his other favorite books on sadism. And Myra liked him so much that she just kind of agreed to, to go along with all of this. And she fell in love with him. And after that, it was game over. She was willing to do anything as long as it pleased him. And you can imagine just how manipulative Ian is. He's, he's definitely learned a lot from the content he's reading. He's learning how to manipulate people and ultimately brainwash an individual into making them believe what he believes. And it was so much so that Myra even changed how she dressed. She took on a Germanic style with leather jackets, long boots, and miniskirts. And she later admitted she was inspired by the fashion and looks of Irma Greece, an infamous Nazi and member of the SS. If you're familiar with those guys, those guys are some of the most evil human beings to ever walk the planet. Myra soon lost her virginity to Ian and soon let him take pornographic photos of her during sex. And the more things she let him do, the more he revealed his true self. Of course, one of the first things he did was shatter her spiritual views, which was fairly easy for him. He was like, yeah, there's no God. And even though she had been a dedicated Catholic, she stopped going to church. Years later, she said, he could have told me that the earth was flat, the moon was made of green cheese, and the sun rose in the west. I would have believed him. Such was his power of persuasion. After convincing her of small things, he revealed his more radical opinions like that rape and murder weren't immoral. He even said that murder was a supreme pleasure and Myra began to accept his thoughts as fact. After months of dating, she shared all of his opinions, and her friends and family noticed how much she had changed. At work, she was known as a nice, friendly girl, but now she had become aggressive and mean. 
Her sister Maureen noticed that she didn't go out dancing with her friends anymore. Instead, she became withdrawn and said things like she hated babies, children, and people in general. After the couple had dated for two years, Ian wanted to put Myra to the test. He began planning an extravagant bank heist, and he asked Myra to be his getaway driver. Myra blindly accepted the role and began taking driving lessons. She even joined the Cheadle Rifle Club and bought two firearms. Myra had passed his test. Even though they never carried out the heist, Ian knew she was completely loyal to him now, and she would even resort to violence for him. By June 1963, the couple moved into Myra's grandmother's house, and Ian began fantasizing about a different crime. Instead of a bank heist, Ian now wanted to indulge in his supreme pleasure. Ian expressed his desire for murder, and Myra's always played along. So on July 12, 1963, 16-year-old Pauline Reed was on her way to a dance at Railway Workers Social Club in Gorton. She originally planned on heading there with three friends, but their parents had discovered that alcohol would be at the dance so they weren't allowed to go. Pauline figured she would just go alone. Around 8pm she got dressed in a pink party dress, white shoes and a blue coat. Her mother Joanne brushed her daughter's hair and put a bright piece of jewelry around her neck. Pauline protested and said, but mom, it's your favorite necklace. Joanne said, well, you are my favorite girl. Sadly, these were the last words they shared together before Pauline left the house and headed down the street. That evening, Ian and Myra were on the prowl. Ian told Myra to drive around the neighborhood in a van that they had borrowed while Ian followed on his motorcycle. Whenever he spotted a potential victim on the sidewalk, he'd flash a light into the van to let Myra know. As they drove down Gordon Lane, Ian flashed his light, but Myra didn't stop. She recognized the potential victim, eight-year-old Marie Ruck, that lived near Myra's parents' house. So they kept driving and eventually they got to Froxmore Street where Ian spotted Pauline. Myra recognized her since she was her little sister's friend and she offered her a lift. She figured the disappearance of a teenager wouldn't be as bad as an eight-year-old. So once Pauline got into the van, Myra told her she needed help finding an expensive glove she had lost in Saddleworth Moor. Pauline agreed to help. When they got to the moor, Ian pulled up behind them. Pauline shot him a glance. But Myra told her that he was her boyfriend and would help them search for the glove. According to Myra, she stayed behind in the van while Ian and Pauline headed into the moor. And about 30 minutes later, Ian returned alone. He quickly led Myra back to the spot where Pauline lay dying in the mud. Her clothes had been scattered along the ground, and her head was nearly decapitated by two massive cuts in her neck and a four-inch incision into her voice box. The collar of her coat and a throat chain had been pushed inside the wound. Myra asked if he had raped her, and he responded, Of course I did. Myra stayed with Pauline as she died, while Ian grabbed a nearby shovel he had hidden during a previous visit. Myra shut herself in the van while Ian buried the body. As for Ian's account, Myra was present during the attack and even participated in the sexual assault. By midnight, Pauline hadn't returned home, so her parents Joanne and Amos went out to look for her, but they found no trace of her. So by the morning, they called the police, but their search also led to a dead end. As far as anyone could tell, Pauline had simply vanished. As it turned out, Pauline had gone to school with Myra's little sister, Maureen, but the connection wasn't made until much later. During the search, Myra was often seen comforting Joanne about her daughter's disappearance. Meanwhile, Pauline's boyfriend at the time, David Smith, was also questioned. David had a criminal record of three minor crimes, but he was quickly cleared of any involvement with her disappearance. But this wouldn't be the last time David's involvement would come into play. 
Since Ian and Myra were now in the clear, they moved on to their next murder a few months later. On November 11, 1963, 12-year-old John Kilbride went to the movies with his friend John Ryan that afternoon. His mother Sheila had heard about the disappearance of Pauline, so she told John to be on the lookout for any bad men out in the neighborhood. Like plenty of others at the time, she didn't consider that John could have been abducted and lured by a woman. Again, the culture in the mid-1900s still didn't wrap their heads around the fact that women could be involved in murder and pedophilia, so many of the neighborhood children were only warned about suspicious men. By 5 o'clock that evening, the movie had ended, and the two boys walked out of the theater, and they decided to head over to the market at Ashton Underline to see if they could make money helping the stallholders pack up. Once they packed up the carpet dealer stall, John Ryan told John Kilbride he had to go home, and this was the last time that he saw his friend alive. Ian later came up to John Kilbride and offered him a ride home, telling him that his parents would be worried if he was out so late. To sweeten the deal, Ian also offered him a nice bottle of sherry, so John accepted. Once they got John inside Myra's Ford Anglia rental, they told John that they needed to make a little detour to pick up the bottle of sherry. John didn't think twice. But after they got the bottle, Ian mentioned another detour to go look for a lost glove by the moor. And just like before, Myra supposedly stayed behind in the car while Ian took John out into the moor. Ian then sexually assaulted John before pulling out a six-inch serrated blade. He tried to slit his throat, but John fought back. So Ian ended up strangling him to death with a shoelace. When John didn't come home for dinner, his parents Sheila and Patrick called the police. And for the second time that year, another search was conducted. Police and thousands of volunteers searched the area. 700 statements were taken and 500 missing posters were put up. For eight days, 2,000 volunteers searched the waste yards and abandoned buildings near where he was last seen, but they came up with nothing. And once again, it looked like Myra and Ian were in the clear. They were depraved scavengers who blended into the working class neighborhood and gained the locals' trust. Six months later, they struck again. On June 16, 1964, 12-year-old Keith Bennett was heading to his grandmother's home to spend the night. Every Tuesday, he spent the night at her house, and this night was no different. Her house was only a mile away in Longsight. His mother would watch him until he got over the crossing to Stockport Road, and then she headed to bingo night. Keith was alone for the rest of the walk until Myra approached him and asked if he would help her load a few boxes into her mini pickup. She promised she would then drive him the rest of the way to wherever he was headed. Meanwhile, Ian sat patiently inside the car. While Myra later drove Keith toward his grandmother's house, she said she needed to stop by a rest stop near the moor. Ian convinced Keith they needed to go look for a lost glove, and their usual plan was put into place. According to Myra, Ian led the victim out into the moor like always, while Myra supposedly stayed in the car. Ian took him to a gully beside a stream where he raped and strangled him to death. After the attack was over, Ian took a photograph of Keith's body. And about a half hour later, Ian returned to the car alone. His pants were spattered with dirt, and he held a shovel in his hand. When he got back into the car, Myra asked what had happened. By now, it should have been obvious to Myra, but Ian told her he had raped and murdered the boy by strangling him with a string. When Keith hadn't returned to his grandmother's house that evening, she just assumed that his mother hadn't sent him over for whatever reason. The family only realized something was wrong when Keith's grandmother stopped by the Bennett's house the next morning without Keith. His parents asked where he was, but Keith's grandmother thought he was with them. They quickly realized something was very wrong and they immediately called the police. And Keith's stepfather, Jimmy Johnson, became a suspect and was actually taken in for questioning four different times 
over the next two years. Police even searched under the floorboards and found that the foundation connected to all the houses down the street, so each house was then searched. But as always, the search led to another dead end and another child seemed to vanish from Manchester. In 1964, Myra, her grandmother, and Ian were rehoused. The post-war slum clearances in Manchester moved them to 16 Wardlebrook Avenue in Hattersley, Cheshire, 10 miles east of the Manchester city center. At their new place, they became friends with an 11-year-old girl down the street. Her name was Patricia Hodges, and the couple often took her out to the moor to collect peat and bring it back to feed their gardens. Even though Patricia fit the bill for a potential victim, Ian and Myra knew killing a child who only lived a few houses down from them would be stupid. Months passed before they harmed anyone else. But by Boxing Day 1964, they had found their fourth victim, 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downey. Leslie Ann was a very sweet and well-behaved daughter. Her mother recalled that every day she would get up, make her bed, and help out with breakfast. She was dedicated to her schoolwork and popular with her friends. In her mother's words, she was never the sort to give anyone any cheek. On the afternoon of December 26, Myra took her grandmother over to her relative's house and left her there until the next day. Despite her grandmother begging, Myra refused to bring her back that night. Meanwhile, Leslie Ann went to the local fair in Ancoats, about 10 minutes from where she lived. Her two brothers and some of their friends joined her. They were only there for a short while before they were bored and out of money, and everyone headed home except for Leslie Ann. She decided to stay and have some fun by herself. She was last seen by a fellow classmate on a gravity wall ride. Not long after, Ian and Myra spotted Leslie Ann, young, impressionable, and all alone. So they purposely dropped some of their shopping bags near her and acted like it was an accident. And like the good-hearted person she was, Leslie Ann ran over to help. And the strangers asked her if she wouldn't mind helping them haul the bags to their car. Leslie Ann agreed and walked with them down the street. Once they forced her inside, they drove her back to their place on Wardlebrook Avenue. While inside the house, they undressed, gagged, and forcibly posed her for nude photographs in bondage. Then they raped and killed her, possibly by strangling her with a string. Myra claimed she had gone to draw a bath during it all, and when she returned, Leslie Ann was dead. But Ian claimed that Myra had helped rape and kill Leslie Ann. So by now, you're probably seeing this pattern of Myra is never there. Right. right. She's always in the car. She's out of the room, whatever. But all the while during this attack on Leslie Ann, they actually made a 13-minute audio recording of the torture and murder, which even included, it was around Christmas time, and and by the end of it, you can hear Christmas music playing in the background. And uh, during it, you can hear Myra's voice clear as day, barking orders at Leslie Ann. She would tell her to shut up. She threatened to hit her. If you're morbidly curious, there are transcripts online. As far as I could find, there's no audio recording of that. It's probably been destroyed. Um, But this audio recording was a huge piece of evidence later because Myra just constantly tried to minimize her involvement. And with this, we, we see her there and we see that she's totally complicit at one point in this audio recording, we can hear someone leave, which we think is Myra leaving, maybe walking down some stairs, but then returning. All the while, you know, Leslie Ann is screaming. She just wants to go home to her mom. She's begging to be let go. And yeah, you, you can still hear Myra. She's 
ordering her to put the gag around her mouth. They had put some sort of scarf. They tied it kind of around her head and in her mouth. And uh, she's ordering, you know, she's going to take off her clothes and everything. So this was a defining point in their murder spree because Myra is clearly complicit. She's tried to paint herself as just this unwilling accomplice who's just there. But as we'll see going forward, she's involved. Yeah. She's not just there to lure the men. She's a part of the whole thing. Right. Start to finish. Which draws a lot of comparisons, like you were saying at the beginning, to Carla Homolka. You know, she right. just tried to paint herself as this unwilling accomplice. Like but, also a victim too, right? Yep. Like I'm a victim in this as well. He was right. forcing me to, you know, lure these people in and right. to become his victims. But ultimately they were a part of the final act as well. Exactly. And she plays into that stereotype of where at the time culturally people were like well women don't yeah uh, totally women they're trying to use killers. that to their advantage when yeah like, oh there's no way i would have ever done that yeah women can't be pedophiles that. right yeah. yeah just utterly sick i mean just thinking about leslie screaming for her mom like right. the christmas music playing in the background i mean that's just such a horrific thing to think of like how sick they are too yeah the fact that they're like celebrating christmas essentially and all the while doing horrific things to this poor little girl is just beyond evil after the murder they drove her body down to the moor the next morning where they buried her in a shallow grave naked with her clothes dumped at her feet by dinner time her mother Anne began to worry so she sent her fiance alan out to look for leslie Ann. And like all the other victims' families, they contacted the police, but there was no trace of Leslie Ann Downey. They searched the neighborhoods and even the countryside. They interviewed thousands of potential suspects and witnesses and hung up missing posters. And still there was no trace. And when it seemed like Ian and Myra could get away with murder forever, they changed their usual routine, which ultimately led to their downfall. Almost a year had passed before they decided to kill again. On the evening of October 6, 1965, Myra drove Ian over to Manchester Central Railway Station. She parked the car while Ian got out and looked for their next victim. This railway station had been Manchester's main railway terminal for almost a century, so Ian had many potential victims to choose from. A few minutes passed before Ian returned to the car with 17-year-old Edward Evans. Edward was an apprentice engineer who lived in Ardwick, one mile southeast of the city center. Ian later told Myra he lured Edward to the car, promising sex. As they approached, Ian introduced Edward to the bleach blonde woman behind the wheel as his own sister, and she drove them to their home on Wardlebrook Avenue. Nothing was out of the ordinary, at least for Edward, and they spent a nice evening over a bottle of wine. At some point, Ian told Myra to go pick her brother-in-law, 17-year-old David Smith, up. This was the same David Smith that had previously dated one of the victims, Pauline Reed, if you remember. David had married Myra's little sister, Maureen, about a year earlier on August 15, 1964. Even though Myra's family had not approved, they quickly got married at the register office. Maureen was seven months pregnant at the time, which her mother was embarrassed about, and none of Maureen's family attended. From a young age, David had several criminal convictions, including physical assault when he was only 11 and a breaking and entering charge. As the old saying goes, birds of a feather flock together. So when Ian had first heard about David, he befriended him. Even though Myra's family hated David, Ian took him in as a friend. Ian often invited David over to the house at 16 Rodelbrook Avenue where they often drank wine late into the night, often talking about Nazi Germany, the distribution of wealth, crime, and Hitler's achievements. 
and Ian let him borrow some of his favorite books. They also fantasized about robbing a bank or post office, and later these fantasies escalated to killing a gay man together, or as they put it, rolling a queer. But it was hard to tell if David was being serious about it. As months passed, Myra was jealous of their relationship, and she saw how it could compromise the safety of their operations. She would soon be proven right. That night in 1965, Myra picked up David and drove him back to the house to hang out with Ian and his new friend Edward. Myra told him to wait in the car for their signal, a flashing light. Moments passed and nothing happened. And when the signal came, David approached the front door and knocked. Ian greeted him and asked if he had come for the miniature wine bottles. David played along and said yes. As Ian led him into the kitchen, he told David to stay there for a moment while he went to collect the bottles. A minute or two passed and David then heard a high-pitched shriek coming from the living room. The shrieks continued one after another, louder and louder. And through the screaming, Myra shouted, Dave, help me. And when he ran to the living room, he saw Edward lying face up with his head and shoulders on the couch and his legs were on the floor. Ian stood over him with his legs straddled around Edward's. Ian was holding a hatchet above his head ready to strike. And when it came down, the crack of Edward's skull filled the room. After several more blows to the head and body, Ian then grabbed a length of electrical cord and wrapped it around Edward's throat before strangling him to death. Ian later said, that was the messiest one yet. Ian had actually sprained his ankle through the commotion. So when he tried to carry Edward's body out to the car, he couldn't make it. So he and David wrapped the body in plastic sheeting and dragged it into one of the spare bedrooms. By early the next morning, David told them he would come back with his newborn's pram to carry the body out of the house, basically a stroller. And they planned on burying the body in the moor like the others. But when David got home around 3 a.m., his guilty conscience caught up to him. He tried to act normal and asked his wife Maureen to make him a cup of tea to calm his nerves, but he ended up vomiting on the floor. And he eventually broke down and told her everything that he had witnessed at Ian and Myra's house. After debating what to do, he agreed to call the police. They could only use the closest phone booth, so he had to wait until sunrise. Fearing that Ian would get suspicious and ambush him on the way to the phone booth, he armed himself with a screwdriver and a bread knife. After making the call, police picked David up and took him to the Hyde police station. While there, he confessed everything he had witnessed. Meanwhile, Superintendent Ball Talbot, one of the Cheshire police, approached Ian in Myra's place at 16 Wordlebrook Avenue. He wore a bread delivery driver's overalls to cover his police uniform so that the couple wouldn't flee when they saw him through the window. When Myra opened the door, he identified himself as an officer and said he needed to speak with her boyfriend. Caught off guard, Myra led him into the living room where Ian was relaxing on a sofa. He had elevated his sprained ankle on one of the arms, and he was in the middle of writing a note to his employer saying that he wouldn't be able to make it to work that day. Officer Talbot then told the couple he was investigating an act of violence involving guns from the previous night. Myra said she didn't know what he was talking about, and they allowed the officer to check around the house. The officer soon found a locked bedroom door and asked the couple to open it. Myra lied and said that the key was at work. Calling their bluff, Officer Talbot said he would drive her to work to fetch the key. Instead, Ian accepted defeat and just told Myra to hand it over, so she did. As the bedroom door creaked open, Officer Talbot spotted the body, wrapped in plastic. As he pulled the sheet back, he found Edward's body stripped, mutilated, and hogtied. The officer then arrested Ian on suspicion of murder and Ian claimed that he and Edward got into an argument that got out of hand. Myra wasn't even considered a suspect at first because officers at the time often didn't think women were capable of murder, but she insisted that she joined them on the way back to the station along with her dog, Puppet. 
When they later questioned Myra, she just said it was all an accident. And with no evidence against her, she was sent home, but only under the condition she would return the next day for questioning. For the next four days, she asked her employers to fire her so she could collect unemployment. Then she went into Ian's office, collected an envelope containing several papers, and set fire to them, likely destroying crucial evidence. She claimed she didn't look through them, but figured they were plans for bank heists. A few days later, on October 11th, Myra was officially charged as an accessory to murder in the case of Edward Evans. As for Ian, he admitted during questioning that he and Edward had fought, but in the end, David had helped him murder Edward. He told them Myra only did what he told her to do. Meanwhile, David told police that Ian and Myra had some hidden evidence in two suitcases stored in a luggage office somewhere in Manchester. And by October 15th, police found a ticket for the luggage in Myra's prayer book. When they found and cracked the luggage open, they found a copy of Mein Kampf, books on sexual sadism and pornographic magazines. They also found nine pornographic pictures of a young girl, who they would later identify as 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downey. She was naked on a bed with a scarf tied across her mouth. Resting beside the pictures was a tape that captured 13 minutes of the girl screaming and pleading for help. As they played the audio back, some of the officers had to leave the room while others broke down in tears. When they played the tape for Leslie and Downey's mother, through tears she confirmed it was her daughter's voice. Police then realized Ian and Myra might be connected to several other murders around Manchester. When they interviewed them, Ian was calm, well-spoken, and guarded. Myra was emotionless and direct and it was clear that early on in the investigation, Ian would claim that Myra was innocent, and he'd keep this up for nearly 20 years. They searched the suspect's house at Wardlebrook Avenue and discovered an old exercise book. Inside, the name John Kilbride had been scribbled next to a doodle of a strange face. They also uncovered a huge collection of photographs in the hidden luggage, and the pictures Ian and Myra posed in Saddleworth Moor, possibly directly above the burial sites of their victims. Several jurisdictions teamed up and decided to follow every lead possible. 150 officers were drafted to search the grounds. During the search, one of Ian and Myra's neighbors, 11-year-old Patricia Hodges, told police she had been taken to the moor several times with a couple to collect peat for the gardens. So she was able to point out their favorite spots along A635 Road. And by October 16th, police spotted an arm bone sticking out of the peat. They first thought it was John's body, but it turned out to be Leslie Ann's. Her mother had been at the edge of the moor watching the officers sweep the area, but luckily she wasn't there when they uncovered the remains. She later identified her daughter by the clothes buried at her daughter's feet. Here's Leslie Ann Downey's brother, Tommy, talking about how his family felt when they found her remains. Leslie was found on the moors at the back where we lived. When they actually uh, found her, I just remember going going to the our, in our house and uh, my mum had to go out to identify her and we're just waiting you know waiting to hear all the family was back at the house uh, I just remember her coming in and uh, just you know just nodding saying yeah it was as you know I can't imagine what my mum had gone through, you know, with what she had to see, what she had to wear. No, she always kept things to herself, my mum, you know. 
she wouldn't uh, she wouldn't tell me anything like including what was on them tapes and no she just kept that to herself she didn't want us to know i wouldn't want to know only five days later they discovered john's body badly decomposed and his mother identified him by his leather shoe I'll show you another clip of John's mother talking about finding her son's remains. Yes, it was anguish because all the time I felt that I wasn't going to hear anything at all. I thought his body must have been burned and I would never know all my life. I'm very glad that, in a way, relieved that we do know where he is now. John Kilbride's body was too badly decomposed for the police to ask his family to identify, so they took the one shoe Ian Brady had left in his makeshift grave to the 12-year-old's home. I remember him coming to the house about half past eight at night. The knock came on the door, and it was John's shoe. I'm just thinking that it was actually... The one, the one positive that you can take away from this is the fact that Ian left their clothes there so that right. they could be identified. True. Because they were so badly decomposed that had he not left their belongings at the burial sites, they may have never been able to identify them. So in a way, at least they had the closure knowing that it was in fact their loved ones. Very true. And not just never knowing what happened to them because in these types of scenarios you almost you wonder it's like would you rather not know whatever happened to them or would you rather know that that was your loved one and at least you know that they were gone i think it had been something like two years since he had gone missing so i'm gonna play another clip for you of his brother terry talking about how they dealt with john's death and disappearance There's no words to express what what the feeling is. You, you, you couldn't understand what the feeling is. You, you know, it, it, the anger, what's there, and and plus the passion for your brother, you know, and for for the other little ones, what's, what, he, what happened, and you, you just can't understand it. You can't get your head round why. This picture here, when was that taken? That was taken, it's got to be two or three weeks, four weeks, just after John has gone missing. Look, and then this chair here was where John sat. Always stayed like that until the day where they found John because we always thought he were coming back. How long was you it know, after he went missing that he was found? Two years. Two years after. Which is a long, long time when you're remembering your brother and you don't know where the hell he is. You know, a long, long time. And it's so sad they kept setting his table and his mother will find out later his mother during this whole time as well i think even after they had found him she kept wrapping his christmas presents every year just trying to keep him alive 
One, you think too, I mean, during those two years, they're just holding out hope that he'll come back, that they'll yeah. find him. And to find out that he died, I mean, I just can't even imagine the pain that they, they dealt with. So that same day, Ian and Myra were charged with the murder of Leslie Ann. The search continued for more potential victims, but winter was quickly approaching. The ground was hardening, so the search was called off for the time being. Meanwhile, Ian had admitted to taking pornographic photos of Leslie Ann, but he claimed that she was brought to his property by two men and she had left his house alive. Tired of his lies, they formally charged him with the murder of John Kilbride, Edward Evans, and Leslie Ann Downey on December 6th, and they charged Myra with the murder of Edward Evans and Leslie Ann Downey, as well as a charge for harboring Ian after the murder of John. After 11 days, they were both committed for trial. Between the two of them, there were three victims police were aware of, but there were still two more that they hadn't uncovered yet. As they searched through the photos, they noticed the couple's dog puppet could be seen in many of them, sometimes as a puppy. So to get a date on the pictures, police had a vet determine the age of the dog to put a rough timestamp on the pictures. The vet exam involved the dog's teeth and they had to put puppet under general anesthesia which just ended up killing the dog because it had suffered from an undiagnosed kidney problem they weren't aware of. On hearing the news of her dog's death, Myra was furious, and officers noticed that this was the first time since the investigation began that Myra actually showed any signs of emotions. She then accused the police of intentionally murdering her dog, and she wrote a letter to her mother shortly after. The letter said, I feel as though my heart's been torn to pieces. I don't think anything could hurt me more than this has. The only consolation is that some moron might have got hold of Puppet and hurt him. So, I mean, we would all reasonably be torn up by the death of our pet, right? That's understandable. But when we compare this level of emotion to any other emotions that she had during this entire time, they just pale in comparison. At one point, they even put pictures of John Kilbride's body after they had uncovered it and like pictures of when he was a kid. And they basically got no reaction out of her. She just said like, oh, this is unfair. And so she's more upset about her dog accidentally being killed than anything regarding these these children at all. Says everything you need to know about Myra. Yep. And even after that, um, she was more the, when she was realizing she was going to trial, she was more concerned about her hair dye because her roots were showing. So she requested hair dye in while she was in jail and they denied her and that's what she was upset about so her dog dying and the roots in her hair and that kind of actually led to the famous picture of her where you can see her roots like right before she goes to trial and i'm glad she's immortalized in that way um because i just can't imagine thinking that that's your priority right now is the roots in your hair it's crazy all of that negates any sort of claims of, oh, I just was the one that lured them. I didn't have anything to do with the murder. I mean, it just shows that she's just as much of a monster as Ian is. So their 14-day trial began on April 19, 1966. Since this case was so high profile, authorities thought that the couple had a public bounty on their heads. So they fitted the courtroom with security screens to protect Ian and Myra from being killed by the locals. David Smith was the chief witness against them in the murder of Edward Evans. But the court later discovered that the newspaper, News of the World, agreed to pay David 1,000 euros if Ian and Myra were convicted, and they would have rights to his story. They'd already paid for a vacation to France for him and his wife, plus 20 euros a week in a five-star hotel during the trial. 
The Judge Fenton Atkinson declared the newspaper's actions as gross interference with the court of justice, but the financial incentive didn't substantially affect the testimony. Plus, David's testimony matched the initial statements to police, and the Attorney General, Elwin Jones, decided not to charge the newspaper. Since they never prosecuted the news of the world, the Attorney General came under pressure, and in November 1966, he and the press council made a declaration of principle. This forbids criminal witnesses being paid or interviewed. The News of the World later rejected the declaration and said the council had no power to enforce the rule. As the trial continued, Ian and Myra both pled not guilty. Over the course of the trial, Ian admitted to assaulting Edward with a hatchet but claimed that someone else killed him. The defense showed that the cause of death was strangulation. As for Myra's testimony, she tried to make it look like she was an unwilling accomplice, but police used her own words against her. When Ian was first arrested, she was quoted saying, I made all my decisions. People go through several stages in their life. After discussions, they change their mind. Ian never made me do anything I didn't want to do. She then testified saying that she didn't have any knowledge of the photographs taken at the moor. She claimed she had been looking out a window and later drawing a bath. Most of the couple's testimonies were just them claiming they didn't deal the final blows or they weren't present during certain aspects of the crime. But in the end, the jury deliberated for two hours. When they returned, they found Ian guilty of all three murders and Myra guilty of murdering Leslie Ann and Edward. The judge said that their murders were truly horrible and they were two sadistic killers of the utmost depravity. He called Ian wicked beyond belief and Myra was a controlled and passive witness who lied remorselessly. Since the death penalty had been abolished, I believe only six months prior, the judge expressed how he wished he could have sent them to the gallows. Instead, he could only give them the maximum sentence of one life imprisonment for each murder conviction they were guilty of, which Ian had three and Myra had two. Myra was also given a concurrent seven-year term for harboring Ian. Ian was then sent to HM Prison Durham, and Myra was sent to HM Prison Holloway. After the trial was over, their convictions were only the beginning. Local newspapers began connecting the dots between the couple's murders and the other children who had disappeared in the area. Unfortunately, many were falsely connected. One was Stephen Jennings, a three-year-old boy last seen in 1962. His body was found in a field, but his father was later convicted for the crime. Another was a 14-year-old girl named Jennifer Tig, who disappeared from a children's home in 1964. But 40 years later, she was confirmed to be alive. Still, no one had connected the couple to Pauline Reed or Keith Bennett. Almost 20 years after the trial, Ian allegedly admitted to Fred Harrison, a journalist at the Sunday People, that he had killed them both. Police claimed they had always suspected him of the murders but had no evidence. And finally, after two decades, the search through Saddleworth Moor started up again. The investigations were officially reopened and the photographs of the moor were pulled from evidence storage. On July 3, 1985, Detective Chief Superintendent Peter Topping, the new head of the investigation, paid Ian a visit in prison. By the end of their meeting, Peter found it unlikely that Ian had confessed the murders to the journalist, but they searched the moor again. To urge police to continue the search, Keith Bennett's mother, Winnie Johnson, sent a letter to Myra begging her to tell the truth. The letter ended with, I'm a simple woman. I work in the kitchens of Christie's Hospital. It has taken me five weeks' labor to write this letter because it is so important to me that it is understood by you for what it is, a plea for help. Please, Miss Hindley, help me. Supposedly, Myra was moved by the letter. Police visited her in prison a few days later, and even though she wouldn't admit to any involvement, 
She agreed to help them find the burial sites by looking at the photos and maps. The areas of Holland Brown Knoll and Shiny Brook looked familiar, but she said it was impossible to be sure without actually visiting the moor herself. Local authorities in the Crown thought the visit would be worth the security risk. Once they arranged for Myra to head out to the moor, the police closed all the nearby roads and patrolled them with 200 officers. Myra was brought in by helicopter at 4.30 a.m. And once she landed, they took her around the moor by car until 3 p.m. But she struggled with connecting the photographs to her memories of the locations. And by the end of the day, no bodies were discovered. The press later called it a fiasco or a publicity stunt and a mindless waste of money. But Chief Topping defended the search. Three days later, they brought David Smith to the moor and had him search for four hours because he still believed he might have been a part of the other murders. Chief Topping also visited Myra for months trying to get any more information out of her. And finally, on February 10, 1987, over 22 years after the murders, Myra finally confessed to her involvement in all five murders. The taped recording of her confession was 17 hours long. Chief Topping could still see through her lies, and he believed she had told him just as much as she wanted him to know, and no more. He described her confession as a very well-worked-out performance. This was obvious because she never placed herself at the killings when she told her stories. She was always in the car, in the bathroom, over the hill, or in the kitchen. Here's a clip of her confessing to being present when Edward Evans was murdered. And it was the night of October the 6th. And I just had this awful feeling of dread. We drove into Manchester Central Station. And he told me he wouldn't be long, unfortunately. story short it was a policeman dressed in a baker's uniform his jacket and hat. It had uh, some blessed on the pocket. And the first thing I said was you've got the wrong house. We have mother's pride. And Chief Topping wasn't convinced that her confession was genuine. So police then visited Ian in prison and told him that Myra had confessed to everything. At first, he didn't believe them, but once they gave him specific details about Pauline's abduction and murder, he knew they weren't lying. Ian eventually agreed to confess everything as well, but only on one condition. He would tell them every last detail, only if he could commit suicide right after. Of course, the investigators couldn't legally comply with a request like this on paper, so they declined. Around the same time, Winnie Johnson sent Myra another letter. She begged her to keep trying for the sake of her son. Myra responded this time saying she appreciated the letters, 
and she said if she had written her 14 years earlier, she would have confessed then. At the time, it wasn't public knowledge that Myra had confessed. In March 1987, she visited the moor again with even more security this time. She was even kept in Manchester overnight at one of the officer's flats, and she visited the moor two times. She told them that Holland, Brown Knoll, and Hograin areas were the right spots to search, but couldn't identify the exact spots. She remembered that as Ian dug Pauline Reed's grave, she could see the rocks of Holland Brown Knoll silhouetted against the night sky, but the search continued, and by April 1987, news of Myra's confession became public. Vocal supporters of Myra, which included Lord Longford, a long-serving politician, still pleaded for her release, and they believed that her imprisonment was only caused by mob emotion. In a public statement, Myra told the public that she had denied guilt for years, but it since changed. Her faith, along with Winnie's letters, had changed her mind. She also claimed that David Smith had nothing else to do with the murders. So I'll give you a little epilogue of David Smith. I feel like even though he's not the main figure in this case, he's big enough to to see what happens to him. Um, so him and his wife Maureen, uh, even though David cracked the case, and because his confession, remember after Edward, really opened this whole thing up, even though he was the one that broke the case, the public still hated him after this, especially because he profited off the case. Because if you remember yeah. the news, the, the newspaper, newspaper was hooking him up. Money, yeah. Give him a vacation and everything. So after this, the public hated them so much. His wife, Maureen, was even attacked in her apartment elevator during the trial when she was eight months pregnant and their home was vandalized. And after a few years, David would often get beat up at local pubs once he was recognized and he later even got into a fight supposedly over his involvement in the crimes, and he ended up stabbing another man, which led to a sentencing of three years in prison in 1969. That same year, his children were taken into state care, and Maureen ended up moving into a single-bedroom apartment and found work in a department store. She received no support from her family and later divorced David in 1973. During this time, her mother was still supporting her sister, Myra, during the trial, meaning that Maureen was still more of a black sheep to her family because she married David. Compared to Myra, who was a convicted murderer, right? After David was released from prison, he moved in with a 15-year-old girl who later became his second wife, and he also somehow won back custody of his three sons. Maureen later remarried and had a daughter, and she also reconnected with her family and this is mostly because during Myra's incarceration over the years, she started visiting her again. So maybe Maureen realized that the only way to get back in her family's good graces was to keep supporting Myra because maybe she was just the golden child in their eyes. Um, in 1980, Maureen suffered a brain hemorrhage and died soon after. John Kilbride's parents, who were Sheila and Patrick, attended the funeral because they were hoping to see Myra there because sometimes you get out for a day in prison if you have a close family member who passes, you get to attend their funeral, but she was not allowed to be there. But Sheila and Patrick Kilbride were so wound up by this that they were just there to attack Myra. They confused uh, another woman who was just a man's daughter, and they even tried to attack her. Sheila was later quoted saying that if Myra ever got out of prison, she would kill her. And we'll later find out that this isn't the only mother who was the mother of a victim who said something like this. 
For years, Sheila had continued to buy and wrap Christmas presents for her deceased son, John, every single year, and this was her way of trying to keep John alive. As for David, his father was terminally ill with cancer, and David gave him a glass of milk laced with barbiturates. He was then charged with murdering his father, but later acquitted in 1972. He then pleaded guilty to manslaughter, but only served two days in prison. I could not find out why he only served two days for that. By 1994, he ran a bed and breakfast out of a 200-year-old house with his second wife out in Otterard, County Galloway. In 2011, he co-wrote a book telling his side of the story, and one year later, he died from cancer at the age of 64. Wow. Yeah. So it seemed like, I don't know, David might have been more tied up with this than we'll ever truly know. Yeah. But... He definitely seems like a shady character. In 1987, after more than 100 days of searching the morgue, police discovered the body of Pauline Reed, three feet below the surface and 100 yards from Leslie Ann's burial. They were able to identify her by the bright pink party dress she wore when she was last seen. When Ian heard that they had found the body, he made a formal confession. Then he officially joined the search for Keith's body and was brought to the morgue on July 3rd, 1987. It had been decades since he had last seen the place and his memory is foggy. He often lost his bearings and blamed it on how much the area had changed. After finding nothing, they called off the search at 3 p.m. By then, a large crowd of press reporters had gathered. Chief Topping refused Ian another visit, and he called off the search on August 24th after over 150 days of searching. Meanwhile, Ian sent in a letter to a BBC reporter claiming he had killed five more people, but his details surrounding these supposed murders were weak at best. And when police failed to find any evidence of these additional crimes, they refused to launch an official investigation. Even Myra told Chief Topping that she never knew about any other crimes Ian might have committed. Here's a clip of Jeremy Coyd, one of his psychiatrists, explaining how Ian might have killed more people. Do you think had he not been caught that he would have continued to kill? I have no doubt he would have continued to kill if he had not been caught. What is your view on reports that Ian Brady had killed more people than he was convicted of? Well, you don't know really, do you? But that was what he was strongly intimating to me. He, he said um, to me when I interviewed him um, about, and I was convicted, he wasn't actually convicted, but his actual words, and I wrote them down, was that he was um, uh, convicted of five killings. And he said, note my use of those words. And the way he my understanding of what he was telling me was to actually was to make the point that he had killed more i don't know whether that was true whether it's one of his games what he was uh, what he was intending to do by that um but it would certainly if, if it was whether it was true or not it was to enhance his position and general bearing as a pretty heavy duty killer in hearing that i'm thinking Maybe in Ian's twisted mind, he's thinking, if I can make myself even look even worse than I actually, you know, actually am, that maybe he'll ultimately get what he wants. I mean, he's clearly searching for any way to achieve death, whether that be the death penalty, which had been abolished, that wasn't even on the table, but maybe, maybe that's just one thought is, if they think I'm this, you know, I did 10 plus murders that maybe... I'll ultimately get what I want. And in and, and either way, I think it's just to continue to pump his evil ego 
yeah. of just being this monster. Leave behind a legacy. Yeah. yeah. As for the cases of Keith Bennett and Pauline Reed, the director of public prosecutions decided that nothing could be gained by another trial. Both Ian and Myra were already serving life sentences and no more punishment could be given. But Keith's body was still somewhere out in the moor, and without a body, his mother Winnie struggled to find closure. So in 2003, another search for his body began. They used a U.S. reconnaissance satellite that could find soil disturbances, but by 2009, they still found nothing. Officials said the search wouldn't begin until there were major scientific breakthroughs or fresh evidence, and if Ian were to help again, it would only be through 3D modeling images in prison. Donations from a public fund started the search back up in 2010, and in 2012, it was rumored Ian had given information to a prison visitor on where Keith's body might be. The woman was arrested for preventing a burial of a body without lawful excuse, but the charges were later dropped for lack of evidence. Many years passed, and on September 30th, 2022, the Greater Manchester Police began searching the moor again. An amateur investigator and author, Russell Edwards, claimed he had found a skull in the moor. A photograph of an alleged jawbone was examined, but by October 7th, they ended the search again without finding any signs of human remains. And as of the recording of this episode, Keith Bennett's body has still never been found. As for Ian Brady, he spent 19 years in prison before being diagnosed as a psychopath in November 1985. He began suffering from auditory hallucinations and believed he was later going to be assassinated. Later that year, he was moved to Ashworth Hospital in Muggle Merseyside, and he made it clear to officials he never wanted to be released, which was a relief for the public since many believed he would kill again. He refused to work with a facility psychiatrist, but he often corresponded with outside specialists, journalists, and writers. In a letter he wrote in 2005, he said the murders were merely an existential exercise of just over a year, which was concluded in December 1964. He claimed that he and Myra were only going to focus on armed robberies after the murders. For several years, he spoke with forensic psychologist Chris Cowley, and Chris noticed Ian's obsession with guns, even though he never used one on a victim. He also talked about how much he hated Ashworth. He once suffered from a broken wrist in 1999, claiming he was attacked by staff for an hour. After the attack, he went on a hunger strike, and throughout the rest of his imprisonment, he refused food and water for 48 hours at a time, but he was force-fed by the hospital under the Mental Health Act of 1983. They'd use a tube that they sent through his nose down into his stomach in order to feed him. He later tried to get a judicial review for the legality of the force-feeding, but he was refused. He later said, I have to fight simply to die. I've had enough. I want nothing. My objective is to die and release myself from this once and for all. So you see my death strike is rational and pragmatic. I'm only sorry I didn't do it decades ago, and I'm eager to leave this cesspit in a coffin. He also said that later he saw no point in ever making an apology because his remorse was shown through his actions, which I'm not really even sure what those actions were supposed to be. But here's a clip of his former psychiatrist talking about remorse. When speaking with him, did he ever show any sign of remorse for what he did? Um, not only did he not show remorse, that he made it clear that he never would. I asked him about remorse, and to which he referred to remorse as, uh, as wind. Uh, and that if they wanted wind, they would wait till doomsday before they got it. From what I gather, it really seems like he felt like he was being inhumanely kept at that Ashworth. Like he really hated the Ashworth hospital. That was like torture for him. 
He yeah. couldn't stand that place. It's interesting too. He had a a mental health advocate that was like assigned to him for for many years. I've like worked with him for I think the majority of the time he was in uh, in prison and at the hospital. And from what she was saying is that, and she was kind of like siding with him, like, oh, he's a human being, you know, like despite the things that he did years ago, like this is this is inhumane what they're doing to him by force feeding him and and basically not allowing him to go back to to prison where he wanted to be and i think at one point he had like a pretty bad seizure and you know i mean we don't know if it was legit or not but i guess he was like foaming at the mouth at one point stuff and i mean it was clear his health was really starting to decline but he was literally trying to do absolutely anything to return to prison where he knew he'd be able he to kill to himself die. yeah, yeah. Yeah, pretty crazy. And we know even from when he first confessed, he was trying to barter his own suicide with, he's like, I'll tell you more as long as I can kill myself, which, yeah, clearly he hadn't been in the best mental health state. And there were even rumors that Myra only started helping police, you know, because years and years had passed before they confessed to to more murders. Um, People thought that Myra had somehow caught wind of Ian's mental health declining. So she's like, this will really get him fucked up as if I start working with police and start telling them shit. Maybe you know, that'll push him over the edge and he'll find a way to kill himself. Yeah, that well, was rumors at the time. but Right. Well, it kind of makes sense because it's like that one person who's been loyal to no end is now turned on him. Yeah. And so he's essentially left with nobody. Because I mean, yeah. for years she was continuing to support him, continuing to communicate with him and and finally she cut everything off from him. So I'm sure at that point he felt like there's absolutely nothing left for me. Yep. So seeing that he was trapped in prison, he spent a lot of his time translating classical texts into Braille. But by the turn of the century, his machine was confiscated for being a potential weapon. They mostly feared he would use it against himself. He also spent his time in prison writing a book titled The Gates of Janus, where Ian analyzed other serial killers. It was later published by an underground press and was quickly met with public outrage. In between his writing, he tried to find ways to kill himself in the hospital. At some point, he desperately wanted to donate his kidney, but he wasn't allowed. And in 2006, officials intercepted 50 pills of Tylenol hidden inside a hollowed-out crime novel sent by a female friend. They figured he might have been trying to damage his liver fatally. In 2005, he sent a letter to Keith's mother, Winnie, telling her he could take police within 20 yards of her son's body, but police refused. They suspected he only wanted another day out in the sun. In 2012, he applied to be returned to prison. He claimed that his plan was to starve himself to death, which he couldn't do in the high security hospital. His application was immediately rejected since he specifically stated that he only wanted to transfer so he could kill himself. The judge said that Ian continues to suffer from a mental disorder, which is a nature and degree which makes it appropriate for him to continue to receive medical treatment. He was kept at Ashworth until his death on May 15, 2017. He died of restrictive pulmonary disease, and it was determined that his hunger strike was not a factor. After 51 years and 10 days behind bars, he now holds the record for the longest serving prisoner of all time in England. As for Myra Hindley, she was sent to MS Prison Holloway, and her imprisonment began with an unsuccessful appeal. But she soon got her status as a Category A prisoner knocked down to Category B, meaning she was less of a risk on paper. Up until 1970, she and Ian had kept up their relationship and sent letters to each other. At one point, Ian even wanted to marry her, but the relationship broke down over the years, 
and their different opinions on their sentences wore each other down. Ian took full responsibility for the murders and was fine spending his life in prison, but Myra kept fighting to prove her innocence. She eventually ended their relationship after falling in love with a prison guard, Patricia Cairns. Patricia later helped her plan a prison escape with another prisoner, but an off-duty policeman intercepted the prison keys. Patricia was then charged and sentenced to six years. Still, Myra was desperate to get out. The problem was that even though she got two life sentences, the judge never specifically handed out a tariff or a chance for parole. At the time, their rules were loose when it came to life sentences. It would take 25 years to be considered for parole, which was set by Lord Chief Justice Joffrey Lane in 1982. But Home Secretary Leon Britton bumped her tariff to 30 years in 1985. At the time, politicians could adjust tariffs, but not judges. Seeing that Myra might be stuck in prison for the rest of her life, she tried to convince the public she was rehabilitated. She claimed she was a reformed Catholic and started a campaign to get the attention of prison officials. She said, I asked people to judge me as I am now, and not as I was then. But outside the prison, Leslie and Downey's mother, Anne West, sparked a counter-campaign against Myra. For the rest of her life, it became Anne's goal to make sure that Myra was never released from prison. And whenever the press spread rumors about Myra's release, Anne was there to give TV and newspaper interviews. Up until her death in 1999, Anne reminded everyone of the horrors that Ian and Myra put her daughter through. I'm going to play a couple interview clips with Anne West now. The mother of Leslie Ann Downey, Anne West, was one of those who gave countless interviews to argue against any suggestion of release. No way can they let, let them out. If they do, I'll be going in because she'll be dead. She was a woman. She should have motherly instincts. She is not human. Devil's daughter. But there's always that little doubt in my mind that one day maybe they will be set free. And that's what's on my mind when I go to bed every night. My child begged her, please let me go. I know what you've done to me and I'll not tell mummy. Please let me go home to mummy. She wouldn't do that for my daughter. Do you think I could ever forgive her? The monster she is. She deserves all she gets, that monster. And more, and more. That woman will not live if she comes out of prison. I know people have said they'll do it for me. I don't want that. I don't want nobody to get in trouble, especially my boys. They've got their lives to live. I'm half dead now. I'm living on pills. I will willingly do that woman in and take my punishment, and I will expect to be put in prison where I should stay until the end of my days. I don't like this expression, an angel, because I mean, she's a very nice person at the moment, and I'm certain if she's let out, there's absolutely no risk at all that she'd ever you know, molest a child in any sense at all. I had to hear the tapes of my daughter, and I know, never heard Ian Brady. It was Myra Henley on that tape with my daughter, not Ian Brady. I had to listen to that and identify the body. When I met Lord Longford, he said that he liked you. Oh, God, you wouldn't think so, the way he's treated me. He also said he felt sorry for you because he thought you got trotted out, was the phrase he used. Well, what he said to me actually was, um, I would never see Leslie again. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, because unless you forgive him and her, you won't go to heaven. 
I said, well, all right, Lord Longford, I'll go where you're going. I won't go to heaven, I'll go with you where you're going. And I did call him. I said, you're the devil's advocate. Some sins may be, but that sin I could never forgive. I say the Lord's Prayer each and every night. There's a much part my husband has told you is not in the room. I'm two hours saying prayers. But there's one part of the Lord's Prayer I will never, ever say, and I never do. And I think, you know what, that's it, so I'm not going to say it for you. Do you think God will forgive you for not forgiving her? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. That's perhaps one of the most powerful victim statements I've ever heard. Yeah. Because it's just... I, I I sympathize with her greatly. I'm just, I mean, especially as a parent now, I'm just, I would be in the same boat. There would be no way I could ever forgive somebody who brutally murdered my my daughter. Yeah, and even her sons were on board. They're like, well, if she gets out of prison, we'll kill her for you. Yeah. And then the, the part where she's talking about how she says the Lord's Prayer every night, but I believe she's referring to the part of forgive those who trespass against me. Yeah, yeah. And she doesn't say that part. Yeah. That's, that's just extremely powerful and just, I mean, the, the pain she has to deal with every single day and also dealing with the fact that there's people advocating to let Myra out of prison. It's just I, it, something, I mean, the, the anger that you would have against those people. Like in that, that one interview from, it looked like a, some type of talk show or something where that woman's like, oh yeah, we're, we're, we're pretty sure that she's a changed person. And yeah, I like how she talking, butts in. She's yeah, like, I've heard the shuts tapes, her man. down. Yeah. And that that woman just looks like I should not have said that. Like I, I was just be embarrassed. Yeah, being there across the table, supporting, trying to even support that. Come on, it's unbelievable, man. I'm trying to say the prayer back in my head to get the yeah. line. It's uh, I I can't remember what the exact line is. It's something along. Forgive those that trespass against. There's something like that. Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us. Oh shit! It's right there where I'm forgetting it. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against, against us. us. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. I think it's that line she's referring to. Yeah. But after Myra confessed to being involved in the other two murders, the Home Secretary put a whole life tariff on her in July 1990, meaning she would never get out of prison. After this, she claimed that she only took part in the killings because Ian had drugged her, or he was blackmailing her with pornographic pictures he had taken of her and threatened to kill her sister Maureen. She also insisted that even though she took part in the murders, she actually never killed anyone. In 1998, she was moved to the medium security HM prison High Point, and over the course of three years, she made three separate appeals against her life tariff, but each one was rejected. In 2002, sentencing laws were questioned and began changing, and the new laws agreed that judges, not politicians, should decide how long someone stays behind bars. Myra's supporters were hopeful this meant her tariff would be re-examined and she would be getting released. They argued she had good behavior in prison for more than 30 years and showed no signs of reoffending. Once rumors of her potential release started circulating, the Home Secretary David Blunkett tried to get new charges against Myra for the murders of Keith and Pauline, but it was 15 years too late. The move would have been seen as an abusive process. 
Luckily, they never had to worry about Myra's release because 10 days before the laws changed, Myra died from bronchial pneumonia at West Suffolk Hospital. She was 60 years old and smoked around 40 cigarettes a day. And a few years before this, she had been diagnosed with a lack of blood flow to the heart muscle and suffered a brain aneurysm. After her death, a short service was held at Cambridge Crematorium. About 10 people attended. None of her relatives were there. Patricia Cairns, the prison guard who helped Myra try to escape, scattered her ashes in Staley Bridge Country Park. Years later, in 2008, her solicitor, which is her lawyer for those in the United States, Andrew McCooey, reported that Myra once told him, I ought to have been hanged. I deserved it. My crime was worse than Brady's because I enticed the children, and they would have never entered the car without my role. I have always regarded myself as worse than Brady. That is all anybody needs to hear. Yeah. To understand just how evil she was and that she was everybody as evil as Ian. I mean, she was a part of it from start to finish. I mean, she was there from the time these poor children were being murdered to helping Ian bury them in the moor to taking photographs, standing on their graves. I mean, they were proud of the work that they did. It's yeah. just absolutely and sick. There's, there's just so much that condemns her. Like she was the in their first victim. She lured Pauline into the car because she she knew her too. That was that's the yeah. really messed up part. She was burning evidence, which we don't truly know what it was. Why would someone just start burning? documents and photographs and shit in Ian's office if you're not guilty of something. Which it could have been plans for bank heists. It could have, yeah. But it also could have been other evidence around. I mean, it could have been photographs for all we know or whatever. I mean, who knows? I I do think this last quote, you know, she probably said it in private to her lawyer. It does make me think she's maybe a, I use this word lightly, but maybe a little bit more human than Ian, just because it, she's being self-aware, like I've done terrible things and I acknowledge it and I should have been sentenced to death. So maybe it's like, that's what sets her aside from Ian. She's still a monster, but at the same time, it makes me think that she might have a, a bit of a soul in there somewhere. Maybe not a full-blown psychopath like Ian, but right. I don't know though, man. I mean, it's it's hard to, it's hard to say because it's a very uh yeah, just as as much as it is admitting guilt there's no i'm sorry true there's yeah. no guilt there's just guilt of like her responsibility when it comes to taking part in the murders but there's no guilt around what she actually did right yeah. there's no guilt around I took these children from their families or I feel bad because of the horrific end these children met were met with at my hands and my partners. So in my mind, I'm almost like, I almost think she's a full blown psychopath too. And I mean, if you look at it from her, from her life, from an early age, there's definitely some of the signs are there as well as so I, I think it's this perfect storm of two psychopaths coming together that are, and you know, is there actually was there actually love there at all like was she actually in love with ian or was it just like they realized that they both had this sick sadistic part of them 
I mean, if someone's and, trying to get you to read Mein Kampf within right, like, the first right. few dates, that, that especially after the recency of the Holocaust had just occurred, you know, not yeah. that long before they started dating, that if if that wasn't enough to turn her away, or all the other things as things started escalating, and like her turning away from her faith and everything, I don't know. There was enough red flags for where she could have walked away. Yeah, many and that's times. what's different about this. If, if we're going to compare this to Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka, because I mean, in that case, there was, she was, Carla was scared of Paul because of the physical abuse that he, he did. Right. But in this one, there's nothing that suggests that Ian was actually keeping her there against her will. Yeah. It was all being a willing participant in, in these crimes. True. And you, Ian even tried to protect her for like the first like 20 or so right. years of when the case, you know, opened up and they had gone to trial. He was still adamant about like, she had nothing to do with it. Yeah. I she mean, only did what she was told, et cetera. I mean, thinking back to the signs of a serial killer and like what makes a serial killer who they are, it seems like both of them are through and through exhibiting all the signs of a, of a serial killer. Yeah. And I, I believe they're both psychopaths. I believe they're both absolutely delusional. And I mean, it, the only she was only saying some of these things and doing the things that she was doing to try to get herself out of prison. Yeah. And there was nothing, you know. She was she was manipulating everybody along the way yeah. in order to get what she wanted ultimately. Yeah, and his that's a good point because who's even I don't know that last quote could have just been more manipulation to be right. like, look, I've changed totally. and I can see myself. I found right. God. I'm a, I w I'm a monster. So yeah, maybe nothing that was seems just another... like there's no evidence to suggest that there's genuine remorse for yeah. what she did. Because in order to, if you're truly changed and you're, you know, you found God again and whatever, there would be a lot more remorse there. There'd be, I can't believe that I did this to these children. I would be, you know, you'd be, publicly apologizing to to Anne and to all the family members for everything there would be way more effort put in to try to help and provide closure and reach out yeah in, oh, a, it, in a much more positive way than basically just saying yeah i was the reason why yeah i'm i'm just as bad i'm worse than him yeah and, and it's almost like maybe it's like a realization of like a sick realization of like, wow, maybe I, you know, this whole time we think Ian's the mastermind behind all of this. But in fact, Myra yeah. is really the, the, you know, the biggest monster here Yeah, because she's, she's almost like she came along she, and she could have tried to sway him away from this, but instead she locked in with him and supported every single thing that he did. And then, provided him the resources and the the tools essentially that he needed in order to carry all this out and again we still don't know how much she was involved in we just still don't know if she was a part of the attacks and a part we have no idea yeah, and, and just, in my mind i think she was absolutely a part of this yeah, she got sick satisfaction that, out that's of this. why that 13 minute audio recording really sh is, showed us that she's present she's there regardless of yeah. if she's actually committing the she's getting fatal something blows. out of this yeah this isn't somebody who's being held against her will yep. and you know oh being blackmailed no that 
you are there because you are enjoying this. Yeah. You're just as sadistic as he is. You know what also really irked me about this case was the letters she was getting from that one mother. And then she was like, oh, I'll confess. And then she even tells the mother, she tells the public about it. She's like, I wish she would have contacted me earlier. Maybe I would have confessed then. I was like, that is one, you're full of shit. Yeah. And two, you're basically pinning your delayed confession because yeah. what the victim's mother blaming didn't reach the victim's out family. Yeah. yeah. It's just so clear to me that she is she was doing everything she could to manipulate everybody around her to try to get what she wanted ultimately was to just get out of prison. Yeah. So yeah, I mean it's just it's um I feel horrible for Keith's family and the fact that they never never were able to get, you know, that closure that comes with you know, finding your loved one's remains and be on the, you know, put him, you know, kind of put that behind them. And it's just, I mean, it's horrific everything that they had to go through at the end of the day. But that is the horrific Moore's murders. With that being said, we're going to wrap up today's episode there. We'll see you guys next week. Until then, lights out, everybody. <laughs>